This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to Recall This Book. Help? Yes, you heard me right. I need somebody, not just anybody. Today, we're diving into the fascinating world of self-help. So alert listeners may recall that our very first episode, which was theoretically about minimalism, ended up in the magical world of tidying up with Marie Kondo. And other, even more eagle-eared listeners will recall references to the revival of stoicism, under modern-day guises, often name-checked by way of Adam Smith and Hannah Arendt. But today in the studio with me, I'm happy to have a real expert, not a self-help guru, but a guru of self-help, Harvard English professor Beth Blum. Hello, Beth. Hello. Recently published a terrific history of the genre, which is called The Self-Help Compulsion, Searching for Advice in Modern Literature. And we turn to her today not just to learn about the research on the relationship between canonical literature and self-help, but also to trace the amazing mutability of self-help over the last century as we move from Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People to books with titles like, help me, Beth, it was a Girl Stop Apologizing? Girl right? Stop Apologizing. Girl Stop Apologizing. <laughs> and The Gentle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. We, we're allowed to say that the on our subtle podcast. Art, subtle Art. Thank you. We're allowed to say subtle and gentle. In other words, books in which self-help seems to be less about influencing others than it does about pushing them away, the sort of self-help as leaning out, as it were. And then we will end, as we always do, with uh, recallable books where we talk about other books that are related to our topic that you might also want to dive into if you found our topic of interest. So, Beth, thanks. It is great to have you today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Can I ask you to begin by talking about how you came to self-help as a topic? Sure. Um, well, the truth of the matter is I came to, to self-help as a topic. My mother <laughs> was always se- sending me self-help books, um, <laughs> and I usually would just throw them away, or mm-hmm. put them on a shelf and never look at them. But then she And what kind of titles did they have, the ones your mom said? Um, well, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff was one I definitely remember, uh-huh. you know, things of that ilk. Yeah. But she sent And wh- is that a book about self-control, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff? This is stuff? about worrying. It's about and worrying. And I think it'll actually be, be relevant to our conversation oh, because okay. in, in many ways it's a kind of precursor of a lot of the not giving a, a crap kind yeah. of um, rhetoric you see in contemporary self-help. Right. So responding, I think, to a rise in anxiety and worry as a kind of social phenomenon. Mm. Um, but one one book she sent me... In fact, wasn't the title of that <laughs> Don't Sweat the Small Stuff ellipsis and, and it's, it's all, all small, small stuff? Precisely. Right, yeah. Richard Carlson in the 90s. Yeah. In the 90s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. 
but one book she sent me was one that I was sort of intrigued by and didn't throw away, but actually opened, and that was Alain de Botton's How Proust Can Change Your Life. Oh, yeah. And I was uh, an undergraduate at the time reading Proust uh-huh. um, in my in my literary courses. And so, so this really intrigued me because it seems so counterintuitive, and obviously that counterintuitive idea that Proust would have practical advice was something that Alain de Botton was really exploiting in his book. But that's what first kind of drew me to this topic and made me interested in the question of the relation between the literary and self-help. Yeah. And, and so the book is really offering a, a new history of self-help seen through the lens of the literary. So self-help is a phenomenon that's been you know, heavily discussed by historians, economists, sociologists. But literary scholars haven't really weighed in on the phenomenon. And mm. I think that's a mistake. I think that... As, as specialists in the kind of meaning and circulation of texts, literary scholars would have a lot to contribute to conversations about the kind of appeal of self-help and its history and the way it's tied to the circulation of print. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is what kind of drew me to the, to the project. And part of what my kind of literary research and perspective enabled me to see was the existence of a really vast and very diffuse archive of self-help mm-hmm. ephemera that was emerging before the kind of usual starting point that we date self-help's origin yeah. as, as being. So emerging really in the early 20th century, the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. And, and you have at that time a flourishing of small magazines, periodicals, pamphlets, also books, lectures, mail order courses, all under this rubric of this phenomenon known as new thought philosophy. Mm-hmm. And this is really the earliest kind of self-help movement, I think. But what is Sam, isn't Samuel Smiles' book called? Yeah, Samuel, okay. so prior yeah. to this, you do have a Victorian culture of self-help or self-culture as it's often discussed. And mm-hmm. my book is actually beginning with the publication of Samuel Smiles' Self-Help, one of the first books to really use that term in its title, mm-hmm. although other books were also using the term. But he really coined it. And and that's where my, my investigation officially begins because you can see a lot from a literary perspective, I think, about self-help's appeal and the kind of work that it's doing by looking at Smiles' text, mm-hmm. and in particular the way it's kind of quoting and decontextualizing literary works mm-hmm. um, and the way it's being received around the world. But right. I think in terms of the kind of what we think of today when we think of self-help, so po- positive visualization and kind of you can use your mind to get all of the wealth and health and success you've ever desired, that kind of discourse is really a descendant of new thought philosophy, okay. which was uh, this kind of early 20th century philosophy, very new agey, pre-new age. Yeah. Um, so I, I give some of this prehistory just to say that Dale Carnegie is not really the kind of the, the origin point that we typically um, imagine him to be. Mm-hmm. He was really embodying many of the, the kinds of philosophies and ideas that were percolating at the time and in the decades prior to that. But he he came onto the scene and really seemed to capture the energies of this New Thought movement. And he was very influenced by it. So he read a lot of Orson Sweat Martin. Uh, mm-hmm. He read a lot of these New Thought pamphlets describing the power of positivity and visualization and the like. And he managed to package it for salesmen and people struggling to climb the corporate ladder in a mm-hmm. way that audiences found really appealing. So actually, the New York Public Library just did a study of its most circulating books mm-hmm. in its history. And Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People is yeah. the most circulating book, nonfiction book, yeah. of their history. So, I, so Beth, help me understand something. I hear what you're saying about the new thought, power of the inward power of the mm-hmm. mind, helping you, you know, channel your psychic energy and all that. When I read 
Dale Carnegie, mm-hmm. it seems like a classic, what Reisman calls in The Lonely mm-hmm. Crowd, it seems like a classic other-directed mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Like, everything is about relationality, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's about how to connect with other people. You know, all the allegories, are, all the stories are like, nobody cares if you're an engineer, what matters if you can manage people, what matters is how do you make people call you by their first name. Mm-hmm. So that, how does that side of it, the other-directed side of it, relate yes. to what you're describing? Right. So so the whole argument of Carnegie is that it doesn't matter if you have the technical expertise right. if you don't know how to be a people person. Right. You don't know. So so his book is really reflecting something that you see in the the kind of self-help more generally of the period and the decade before, which is actually what um, Ernest Hemingway's uncle called the quality, the necessity of get-alongableness. Get-alongableness. Wow. <laughs> a what a very un-get-alongable yeah, word. Yeah. But, That's um, terrible. But this kind of anxiety stemming mm-hmm. from the realization of how much of our fates and our success, uh, our, our kind of possibilities depend on, on our reputations and on mm-hmm. um, what other people think of us. So, so on the one hand, it's expressing a kind of social determini- determinism in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also suggesting more optimistically that there are things you can do to make yourself more get alongable. <laughs> yeah. um, and and so there's a kind of possibility of agency there at the same time as it's symptomatic of a broader kind of deterministic view of yeah. the social. So mentioning reputation management, you're mm-hmm. obviously thinking about parallels between like the 1920s and, mm-hmm. uh, and the 2020s, mm-hmm. I guess we can now say. But um, and I hear that. But it, it also does. Carnegie seems so unapologetically sure that life is defined by those sociable relations, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that is different from, well, like the example that you gave about not worrying, mm-hmm. like worry, worry problems are problems that are interior to your own mm-hmm. head, right? Carnegie's problems are not worry problems. They're like, you know, get do I get to invited to that party on Friday night? Well, this yeah. is what's funny about Carnegie. So that's his reputation. And certainly yeah. that's the sense we get from How to Win Friends and Influence People, yeah. his most famous book. He also wrote a book called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. Published in the 40s. Not as 45. popular. Not as popular and not really interested in the kind of causality there. Like, could yeah. stressing out about how to win friends and influence people lead you to start yeah. worrying more yeah, 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 <laughs> and yeah, prevent yeah. your ability from living? Yeah. So there's not a lot of sense that of his own kind of complicity in this kind of yeah. worry epidemic. But there he talks about how he himself has, has been beset by worry throughout much of his life. And that book is actually a really interesting kind of precursor to a lot of this learn how to not care stuff. Mm-hmm. So to navigate impressions, mm-hmm. which is kind of like reputation exactly. management in a way, what what relationship does that have to the concept of sincerity? Well, sincerity is a very vexed term in Carnegie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one of the one of the big charges against Carnegie was that he was he was sort of endorsing flattery, obviously, and it definitely comes across that way. I mean, just you, <laughs> yeah. you know, I read the first couple of chapters, yeah. and you know, yeah, but oleaginous <laughs> is a word that comes to mind. Yes. You know, yeah. and Marshall McLuhan when he read um, Carnegie was absolutely horrified. And he Mm -hmm. actually wrote a piece about it that I don't think it's ever been published, Mm -hmm. but I talk about it a bit in my book. It's really interesting. And he couldn't believe that more people weren't totally outraged and Mm -hmm. scandalized by this philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pro- Wait, Beth, have you worked in the Marshall McLuhan archives or something? Uh, like? the, I, they were very kind and they sent me um, wow. yeah, his, his, his writing. Cool. On. Yeah, it's okay. really cool. But the part that most upset him was this part where Carnegie's addressing the idea of sincerity and flattery. And he says, no, don't worry, I'm not recommending flattery. What I'm talking about is honest, sincere appreciation. Uh-huh. 
And then he says, I'm not talking about a kind of shortcut solution. What yeah. I'm talking about is a way of life. Uh-huh. And to McLuhan, this was horrifying. Yeah. The yeah. idea that this was yeah. not only a kind of a business strategy, but a whole life philosophy or ethic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but it's, it's not theatrical, it's performative. Right. You actually have to kind of embody it and live it. Right. It can't just be something you put on and then you exactly. say whatever the hell. You actually Because have then to, it would be insincere. Right. You have and to be would, thoroughly committed to right. it. Right. Right. Um, and so then That's there's the so question. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Can you... Can you be sincere about your appreciation, expressing your appreciation for someone what, while doing it for instrumental mm-hmm. ends or transactional ends? Or is mm-hmm. that a kind of contradiction or paradox? Yeah, so th- yeah. that's something that Carnegie's raising in his book. And I mean, the interesting thing about Carnegie, as I've said, is his techniques really work. Yeah. I mean, I've given myself a week and said, okay, try you know, just to, to see what it would be like to try to implement some of these ideas. And, yes. and chiefly in terms of the idea of not trying to flatter people or influence them necessarily, but if there's something somebody's doing that you admire or appreciate, yeah. why not vocalize that? Uh-huh. Which is something that if you're kind of a more critical or grumpy person, you yes. might not necessarily uh-huh. automatically do. Yes. And so that, that aspect of it, which ultimately is what he's recommending, uh-huh. is actually somewhat useful, I, I think. I see. Yeah. So, so... Speaking of which, let's let's talk about the uptake of self-help sort of through the 20th century. Yeah. So the story, because I really want to get to the story of, you know, these kind of neo-stoical texts of our own day, which mm-hmm. call themselves self-help, mm-hmm. but are about, you know, basically, well, managing without the rest of the world or being able to hold the world at bay or stop apologizing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the story of the uptake of Carnegie, do you think it's the story of what uh, i mean triumphant american american other directedness like how does it how does it manifest itself i think it's an emphasis on on people pleasing on um i think another kind of pivotal moment would be maybe he- he- helen gurley brown having mm-hmm. it all mm-hmm. um so the idea of really i mean this is what the sociologist mickey mcgee calls the self belaborment Mm. Um, of self-help. So the idea that there's the individual has to do a lot of work at all times to kind Mm. of try to be hitting all of these boxes and pleasing all of these people and doing all of these things right. Mm -hmm. And this creates a lot of pressure, a lot of it contributes to the kind of culture of stress and overwork and anxiety that I think a lot of the contemporary authors are reacting against. Yeah. The way in the book that I describe this more recent kind of turn in self-help away from other directedness and toward kind of self-fulfillment and self-affirmation is I describe it as a kind of apathy prestige. Mm. So there's a kind of valorizing of not caring and not Mm -hmm. doing. And this, I think, definitely adopts a different valence for men and for Mm -hmm. women. So, and there are going to be exceptions to this, but for men, I think the the kind of interest of stoicism is particularly heightened for young men Mm -hmm. of a certain demographic who, you know, often people have discussed more generally the kind of neoclassicism of a lot of the kind of alt-right, part of a sort of nostalgia for a kind of more patriarchal time. And, and so I... So wait, so in that, in that analysis, stoicism is just one more example of kind of a residual, like, ancient Roman or exactly. 18th century kind of more manly virtue. Right. Okay. That's one reading of that okay. trend. Yeah. I don't... But that I, sort of blurs together a whole bunch of yes. older yes, philosophical... Yes, it does. And I think systems. there's... 
there's a kind of a more specific mm-hmm. way of accounting for the interest in Stoicism that has to do with its actual content and, mm-hmm. and practicality and advice. Um, that's not just reading it as purely symptomatic of, of this kind of political climate. But I do think that that is also a part of it. But in any case, for women, I think the interest in apathy or in not caring comes from this history of this idea that I mentioned of having it all, this mm-hmm. kind of burden of, of being a kind of domestic goddess. Exactly. And so you have a book like Tiffany Dufu's Drop the Ball, Achieving More by Doing Less. Achieving More <laughs> by Doing Less. Okay. Um, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing mm-hmm. is, I think, sort of a, a work mm. of a hybrid work of self help that's contributing to that genre. And then you also have Sarah Knight's The Magic Art of Not Giving a Fuck. So so there's certainly an interest among women authors in using this new discourse to rid themselves of the baggage of a lot of the gendered history of, you know, what Hawks Child called like the emotional labor or emotion work mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. being a woman. But they do. So in other words, but th- so if I'm understanding you, then you basically are saying that these are just tonal differences. But underneath, if you're against emotional labor, that's a form of stoicism, isn't it? Or is it? I think so. I mean, yeah. I think that that the interest in stoicism sort of crosses gender lines. And for instance, the, the author Elif Batuman is really mm. interested in Epictetus and stoicism in a way that I find. So, mm. I mean, and I'm interested in stoicism. So mm. I don't think it's, it can be divided purely along gender lines. But it, it's certainly true that in terms of stoicism, the whole neo-stoical movement received a huge push from Ryan Holiday and Tim Ferriss, mm-hmm. who are two kind of Life hacker uh, podcast. Yeah, you, you sent me one of Tim Ferriss's yeah. <laughs> videos. It's pretty hilarious. Yeah, I mean. um, but they're <laughs> tremendously popular. Yeah. And Ryan Holiday, who's a, who's a friend of of Ferris, yeah. probably has has done the most to promote stoicism. He used to be a, a, a director of PR for American Apparel. Uh huh. Yeah, and then he he turned to kind of. Um, publishing these these kind of calendars about stoicism with like a stoical quotation right. for every month and, and things like that. But okay, but so yeah. so Ryan Ferris is sorry, Tim Ferris yeah. is giving a TED talk about stoicism yeah. and suddenly Dale Carnegie is resurrected and appears with a, and he is also giving a TED talk. Mm-hmm. What would they have to say to each other? Wouldn't would Dale Carnegie be like absolutely shocked and appalled that this is where self-help had gone or would he recognize it or well i certainly think that part of the appeal of of stoicism today has to do with the way it presents an alternative to the positive thinking tradition right that very carnegie was very much endorsing and so part of what's interesting to people about stoicism is the way it's making space for negative Mm -hmm. uh experiences and Part of one of the exercises that Ferris loves is the premeditatio malorum. Mm. So this practice of imagining the worst that can yeah. arise, yeah. and kind of doing that in order to to purge yourself of your the anxiety power of and fear. Thinking. Exactly yeah. the power mm. of negative thinking. So that would certainly run counter to the right. positive um, inclinations that that you see in Carnegie. At the same time, I do think that, as I said, with Carnegie's kind of later work, how to how to stop worrying and start living you see a recognition of, of the need to kind of engage in this personal inventory taking. Mm-hmm. That is something that Stoicism advocates and a lot of these contemporary self-help gurus are also recommending. I was wondering if you had thoughts about the significance of self-help as a book that people would still pick up in a bookstore mm. versus it just seems like it probably lends itself to TED Talks, oh, YouTube yeah. videos, probably podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So do you have a thought about that, about self-help specificity of like what, you know, what medium you get it in and whether that's changing? I think self-help was actually made for the internet. Yeah, uh, interesting. I mean, okay. s- so the decontextualized quotations, the kind of inspirational yeah, yeah. sound bites that mm-hmm. you find even in smiles yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have, a, have an ideal home yeah. online and uh-huh. in the world of memes and, and yeah, kind of soundbite wisdom and the like. So... Is there any tension between that and the notion of a self-help that is training you to, like, feel fortitude and, like... Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to so... be true to yourself and yet to be <laughs> disseminated along the Internet. And, yeah, you know. I mean, I think that the kind of the Victorian idea that discipline is good for you and difficulty is good for yeah. you is is not something that you find in a lot of contemporary self-help that tends to kind of skip over that work of sifting and sorting Mm -hmm. and kind of do it for you Mm -hmm. so part of the the kind of classical benefit of the commonplace book or something was that you are doing the work of kind of mining these texts and trying to pick out what's relevant and it's different for each person what i find relevant in middle march might be different than what you do or something well so beth this might be a good time to turn to our recallable books which is the moment at which we uh you know think about if you're interested in this topic and who is not interested in self-help, <laughs> then what, you know, what other books would we send people off to read? And so, we, yeah, so Beth, what have you, what have you got? So I'm going to recommend Epictetus's handbook. Wow, cool. Yes. And this is because when people ask me what I read for self-help, the honest yeah. answer is yeah. when I'm really freaked out, I read Epictetus. Yeah. And the, the argument of Epictetus is that you have to kind of learn to adjust your desires to the things that are in your control and to kind of let go of the things that are not in mm-hmm. your control. Mm-hmm. So he he has a kind of list and he, he goes through and tries to explain to you, these are the things that are in your control and these are the things that are outside of your control. And what's really interesting to me about that is that the things that he thinks are outside of your control and in your control are very different from, mm. from kind of the Carnegie version. So he says you can control wealth, you can control health, you can't control reputation, you can't control political power. All of this is outside of your control. Yeah. What can you control? Kind of your own virtue, your integrity, your soul, your preparedness yeah. Yeah. for meeting whatever contingencies may arise. So yeah. when I teach Epictetus, the students always get really stuck on that. They can't yeah. believe that he would say that reputation is outside of your control. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's so Fama. different. Exactly. Yeah. From from the Carnegie kind of belabor yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, model. Yeah. What can I manage if not my reputation? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But but I think that it's actually really helpful to to think about, you know, what are the things that that are within our power to kind of adjust to and and what should we kind of let let be so that's actually really great Betsy. you totally changed my mind because okay first of all i was going to recommend sheila hetty's how <laughs> how should a person be is that right yes which is which is a lovely book it and i do great. recommend it but mm-hmm. you mentioned it already so i'm oh, done with that oh, sorry I and that was okay that. but then i was going to mention uh then i was going to recommend theory of moral sentiments mm. adam smith which i often rave about mm. because i think he has this weird notion of needing to have he's interested in the imaginative capacity to sympathize with others coupled with the necessity of kind of damping down your own emotions so in a weird way he's Mm. interested both in emotional attunement to others as well as the disappearance of one's own emotions so i Mm. i I like that that's useful yeah Yeah. and so i think of that as like literally neo-stoical like i think of it as trying to take the stoics and do something different with it (laughs) but the thing you said about like the fama and fama 
you know, reputation being the thing beyond your control, made me think of the Conrad novel Nostromo, mm. because I don't know if you remember that novel that Nostromo, like our man, mm-hmm. is that he is an old style guy who lives and falls by his reputation in his community mm-hmm. and the story of the tragedy of Nostromo I'm not going to go through the whole plot here <laughs> which I don't even really remember but basically he's caught in a new world where he could be kind of enfolded in capitalism and pursue treasure mm-hmm. but his nature is to only want to be defined by like what his standing is in the eyes of his community mm-hmm. and his tragedy is that he's caught between these two things he can choose community or he can choose wealth and possible triumph elsewhere and mm. he can't he kind of can't make those ethical systems reconcile mm. so it's a really good way to think about like how much reputation management is who you are yes you know? um, one of the things I love about Epictetus is he says you know basically for every for every reward there's a kind of price exacted so he has an example where he says oh well you weren't invited to that party well it's because you yeah. weren't willing to pay in the currency of flattery yeah. and kind of small talk yeah. chit chatting outside the door of this person who was having the party so yeah. yeah so it wasn't worth it to you actually yeah so it's kind of a, a reorienting of our values and our uh, what we're willing willing to uh, pay for i i think that's I, I think that's incredibly helpful yeah. actually yeah i like that I feel like there's a, probably a way to bring Willa Cather in there as mm. well. Because I think, like, Cather is constantly aware of that moment of, like, the, yeah, the intersection of different emotional economies. And actually, that's also a great connection since this Beth, this conversation comes in the middle of our mini-season on money. So, in a way, yeah. that connects us to the, yeah. it at least connects us to economic questions. Okay. Um, so, I just want to say that, recall, this book is hosted by John Plotz and usually by Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, and sound editing is by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticism, or suggestion for future episodes. You can email us directly, or we're very easy to find via Brandeis, or contact us via social media and our website. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please, please, please do consider writing a review or rating us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you may be interested in checking out past conversations with, for example, Quinn Slobodian on the rise of ethno-nationalism, interviews with uh, Shishen Liu, Zadie Smith, Samuel Delaney, and Mike Lee. And certainly look for the remaining episodes of our season on wealth and money with Peter Brown and Mark Blythe, and uh, we hope Thomas Piketty. So, Beth, thank you very much for coming. Thank it's you, a John. Great pleasure. Uh, and so from all of us here at uh, RTB, thanks for listening.